0: You'll turn with me in your Bible, however medium uh, you're consuming it in, um, to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesus to the sacrifice. I will show you what you you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably? I have come to, sac- to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated... Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinabat and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and rent, went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Thank you Gray. Uh, my name is Brian Swergin, so one of the associate pastors here, and really. Thankful you chose to be with us this morning uh, as we continue our series in the life of David. Um, a favorite get to know you question of mine that I ask sometimes at a table if I'm with people I don't know is, uh, is this question If you could have dinner with anybody uh, in the world right now, who would it be? And we used to ask this a lot in uh, Freshman Bible Study and other things to get people talking. And what was interesting is a very common answer was always somebody from the British monarch like Kate Middleton was a very popular answer you know the Princess of Wales married to Prince William and actually as I thought about that answer uh, it really would be fascinating because think about if you sat down with Kate Middleton the Princess of Wales on the one hand if you started talking and she let her guard down you know you would discover that she's a real human and then some ways she really is like you like she might talk about how she worries about her kids things that she's sad about. You might discover, like, she eats Lucky Charms like you do or or watches the same TV show like you do. There might be things that you discover where you're like, wow, Kate Middleton isn't that much different than me. She's a real human with needs and worries and joys. But on the other hand, if after, you know, talking about Lucky Charms and Wheel of Fortune or whatever it is, you know, if she finally looked at you and was like, oh, my goodness, we're so much alike you would kind of think, well, not, not really. You are this thing called royalty, you know, like your lucky charms are probably brought by a butler and all these you know, other things because you're a princess. So there's ways that actually we are not alike and we never will be alike, right? Look, the passage from 1 Samuel 16 that Gray read for us, this is when we first meet this massive figure in the Old Testament. His name is mentioned 600 times, David, In the Old Testament 30 times in the New Testament he prized the largest figure in the Old Testament and on the one hand this is how I kind of want us to think about today and the the rest of the time even throughout the semester there there is a sense that David is just like me and you like he's a real person in real history 3,000 years ago and throughout 1st and 2nd Samuel you will get a detailed portrait of his life and you'll see in some ways he's quite ordinary like he laughs he cries he becomes friends with people, he gets betrayed by people, he's courageously faithful sometimes and other times he really blows it and fails. And so there's a real sense that David is shockingly relatable because he, he's like me and you and gives us a real picture of a human trying to follow and trust a God that he cannot see while struggling with sin. So to that extent, David shows us what it's like to have a heart that loves God as an ordinary person and to the extent that we see that we're to want that but also on the other hand like Kate Middleton David is completely unlike us because he's a king he's royalty and he's ra- raised up at a specific time in history for a specific purpose and he's called to rule and reign in such a way that when we see David we get a glimpse of King Jesus specifically specifically David gives us a window into the heart of a king that saves, whose name is Jesus. And so David is probably our clearest foreshadowing of Jesus in the Old Testament. And so always with David, we're going to see two things. That yes, on the one hand, there are ways that we're called to be like David. Anytime his heart reflects a godly heart, yes, we want to be like that. And, and that displays a security of living before God. But also, he displays for us what a good and righteous and wise king brings in Jesus that brings real eternal security to me and you. And that is not found in me, that is found in Jesus, in Jesus alone. And so that's the two kind of headings actually that I want to look at as we meet David for the first time, uh, that, that he shows us uh, that God cares about a godly heart, but then he also shows us a king that saves, that, that God provides a king that you can trust for salvation and security. So first, a godly heart. All right, so the chapter opens. uh, Samuel is in tears. Uh, He's a prophet. Les talked about this last week that Saul, Israel's first king, has been a failure. Uh, As God's mouthpiece, uh, as a prophet, Samuel has delivered that news to Saul. He has told him that God has rejected him, Uh, and appropriately, there's real grief and sadness in Samuel. Uh, Their leader, instead of having a heart that feared and loved God, feared and loved other things, namely power self-preservation. You actually begin to see that as, as Samuel fears that Saul is going to kill him. And so Saul, uh, Samuel is rightly grieving the consequences of that, of arrogant Saul. The Lord corrects Samuel not because he's sad, he corrects the length of Samuel's grief because it appears that Samuel's on the brink of despair. And the Lord reminds Samuel that he has actually provided a king for Israel in Bethlehem. And I love that, that the Lord reminds Samuel that amidst sin and pain and confusion and failure, he, he reminds Samuel that those are not barriers to, ha- to, to my work. That even Samuel himself has to be reminded that even in darkness, even in confusion, even in sin, I'm at work. And he has to remind Samuel of that. He probably has to remind me and you of that too. So Samuel then goes on this mission, right, to find this new king to anoint that's going to be of the family of Jesse. Jesse. And as he enters the town, everybody gets nervous, and we think that's weird, but I think it's kind of like, again, if you're a Marvel fan, like if Iron Man shows up in your town, he never shows up for a casual drop-in, right? If Iron Man shows up, something's about to go down. It could be bad. It could be good. And so when Samuel shows up, people get nervous because Samuel's the prophet of God. This could be bad news, but he relieves their anxiety, and he says he's here to make a sacrifice, which means after a sacrifice, a huge party always happens for the whole town. So that happens and it appears that amidst the giant feast, Samuel goes and he finds Jesse and he he, he asks to see his sons as he's looking for this new king. And it's here in this interaction with Jesse and the sons that I want to see what God prioritizes, what he deeply cares about because we often overlook it. Right? Samuel knows there's somebody special in the house of Jesse. And so Samuel starts looking at Jesse's sons and he notices Eliab or Eliab, however you pronounce it, And something about him is so impressive that Samuel assumes, well, that's him. That's the special one. So he must have had some kind of appearance of Thor or something like that that was just beautiful and sturdy and accomplishing, right? But whatever impression that made on Samuel, he thought, that's it. He's the one. Which means Samuel assumes that what impresses him is the same thing that impresses the Lord. But by the end, you realize that Samuel has been fooled by what God actually cares about, which is really interesting because Saul was outwardly impressive too, and we just saw that downfall, and Samuel is still fooled. How can Samuel and us still be fooled about what God prioritizes? I think it works like this. Uh, um, I dabble uh, in doing illusions. Some RAF people have seen me perform, try to perform some of these, um, and they're pretty mediocre, but for like a third grader, I can, I can do it for about five minutes. And here's the key to all illusions, okay? I'm about to spoil it. You get a third grader to focus on something minor and hold the attention over here, while the little major work over here they do not see. They remain blind to it. That's how I do illusions. Um, and see, what, how Samuel is getting fooled, it's really interesting. And it's instructive of how our hearts work. But there's two ways to be blind I could just not see or I could be focused on the wrong thing something minor and that's what's happening here that the improper focus of Samuel and us means that we get fooled about what God really cares about about what his priorities are and what he says in verse seven when he says do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature this is God talking because I've rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart This is telling us, do not be fooled. The Lord prioritizes what goes on underneath the surface. He he prioritizes the inward disposition, the heart of man, not external appearances or charisma or those things that we tend to focus on. And so the application really is, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you prioritize what God prioritizes? Or have you been fooled? Because I think a lot of times we get fooled. Like, are you concerned about most what's beneath the surface or with things that are less important? Like, what is your measuring stick, let's put it this way, for God being at work in your life? What's your measuring stick for whether you're growing spiritually or growing as a Christian, however you put it? How do you measure that? Because if you're like me, the measuring stick, a lot of times, it's on the surface. It's things like, do people notice me? Do people consider me influential? What impressions do others have of me? Does my family look like it have, has it all together? Do I look like I have it all together? Do I look confident before people in my work? And the introduction of David is telling us, do not be fooled. God's concerned is with what's underneath, with the heart, with our character which means the measuring stick of godliness is actually heart formation, which is a lot deeper, which is a lot messier, and which lasts your whole life. Which means if you want to ask yourself questions about if you're growing, they're a lot more convicting. It's things like this. Am I less greedy and more generous today than I was four years ago? Do people around me consider me less irritable and more patient and compassionate than than I was five years ago? Am I less defensive, more humble, have less pity, self-pity than I did five years ago? In other words, do I have a heart that is growing in its love for God and other people? That is God's concern. And the Lord of this universe always looks beneath the surface. He cares about what you love. This is what Les was talking about last week. He cares about the kind of person you're becoming a whole lot more than how gifted that you are. And we fool ourselves all the time. And so God signals from the very beginning when he anoints David, he's asking us to observe David's heart and to watch it. Because this really is where we can say David is like us. You're going to hear over and over again, we're going to say that the main application is not dare to be a David because he is a king and he's pointing us to Jesus. However, We are going to be asked to watch David in an up-close look as this portrait of his life that through trials, through suffering, through failure and sin, we're going to see that God works beneath the surface and forms David's heart into a godly heart, a heart that is like God's, loving, truthful, compassionate. And what's interesting, in the whole life of David, there are no miracles. No miracles show up in, the, in this part, which means you get to watch David in ordinary ways be formed into godliness. And we will be asked as we watch David try to trust God and fail and repent, is that what you want? Do you want that kind of lasting change beneath the surface that rings in eternity? Or do we just want the surfacey stuff? Because God is calling us to want a heart that is godly that is like God's, and David is going to show us the way. So first of all, David is like us in a way that you're going to watch God develop a a godly heart in him, and he invites us to follow David in that. But secondly, David always shows us a saving king. Right? Remember the context, Samuel's grieving Saul's failure. Why is he grieving? Why has Saul been a failure? Because if you go back and you look at Deuteronomy 17, which is centuries before even Saul you'll realize, and Les mentioned this, that a king was not a problem. God always planned for a king. Deuteronomy 17 gives instructions of what Israel's king is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be like a king like no other nation because this would be a king that would sacrifice himself for the good of the people instead of asking the people to sacrifice themselves for him. It would actually be a king that would use his power to serve others rather than to hold on to his power. And the picture in Deuteronomy 17 is this: when that kind of king, that kind of selfless, humble, powerful, just, and loving king is on the throne, Israel will finally have security, and there will be new life. And Saul has been nothing like that; it's a disaster. And so he's, Samuel is in deep grief because he knows without a righteous king, there is no hope. And so God tells Samuel, "Get up! I have provided for myself a king, and he's going to be in the house of Jesse." So you re- re-enter the scene, okay, Th- think in terms of Samuel is looking for a king. Actually, that word, the Lord's anointed in the Septuagint and the Greek, it's the word Christos, Messiah. He's looking for a Messiah, okay? He's looking for the kind of king that's going to bring salvation and peace and security, and he sees Eliab again, and it just seems so obvious by this guy standing that he must be the, the savior, the king, and God says no. Then comes Amenadab and then Shema, Seven sons, seven potential kings walk before uh, Samuel. Seven's the number of completion. Seems like they've all come and none of them are it. God rejects them all. And so Samuel is confused and he says, are all your sons here? And Jesse says, well, the youngest is left. The, 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 word, the Hebrew is literally little brother. It means runt. Like they didn't even bother to bring him. So it's insignificant is he. They leave him out tending the sheep that anybody else can do. They forgot him. And Samuel says, well, go get him. We'll wait. We won't sit down until he gets here. And when he comes, that's him. That's the king. That's the one that's going to start to provide security and salvation for you. Think about that. God had to repeatedly say no to what Samuel and everybody else thought would be the thing that saved him had to keep saying no to that and point them to the one that actually would, that they didn't think would. So it works like this. My friend Richie Sessions, used um, this analogy, that really this is kind of like Alvin's Island. You know Alvin's Island down at the beach? They're on like every other block. Where if you're like a nine-year-old boy, when you walk into Alvin's Island, if your parents took you in there, it was like paradise. I mean, it's like plastic swords and airbrush T-shirts and koozies and these giant rafts. And you cannot figure out why your parents want to get out of there so quick. Because you're like, this is amazing. And then, hopefully, as you get older and you mature, you realize when you walk in Alvin you're like, this is two acres of garbage. No wonder my parents wanted to get out of here, right? That is what is going on here. When you start remembering that our hearts, the way God made us, is we naturally crave security. Wanting security is a great thing. We actually naturally crave a king. The problem is we fix our hearts on all kinds of other things that we think will make us secure and make us okay, all kinds of other kings, and they're two acres of garbage. And God has to keep rejecting those things, saying they will not save you, they will not make you secure, to point us to the the one thing that will. And here's the deal, you, you will never find the security that ki- that a king brings until you let god reject all the other kings that you cling to right so many of us we feel like what's finally going to make me secure what's going to be a real king is if i get associated with the right people that makes me feel safe right it starts as early as junior high I start thinking if i can get in with these people you know, with this group of friends or i can get in with this organization i'll be safe protected and secured Then we get to college, right? It's still there. If I get into this Greek organization or if I get onto this right team or or serve in this organization, I will be okay. It doesn't go away. I get out of college. If I can get into this country club, if I can be connected to the right kind of people or get connected to these people at work, I will finally have security. And over and over again, we keep looking for that kind of king. And at some point, we have to realize it's two acres of garbage. They will not be a sufficient king. They will not provide security. God rejects them. And the most tempting of all is that we begin to think that we can be our own kings. I won't trust anybody. The way to transformation, the way to security is I will just do it myself. I'll be disciplined. I'll prioritize my family. I'll prioritize exercise. I'll prioritize education. I'll prioritize Bible reading. I will become a well-rounded, good person. That is what will make me secure. And our efforts, efforts to be our own king and to bring our own security, God rejects it. He says it's two acres of garbage. It will not work. You're not made to be your own king. So a seminary professor used to always say, quit asking for forgiveness for not being able to do everything. And instead, ask forgiveness for every thinking, for every thinking that you could do everything. That's the problem. We want to be our own king. And so with the anointing of David, God, God is actually inviting us into this bigger story of what he's doing in the world, saying, I want you to hope in a king that I will provide, not that you provide. Because real security is always provided by God. It's a gift of grace. And when David shows up, he says, There's my king. You didn't think it was him, you didn't think it looked like a king. And he's preparing the way for saying that the king that I'm going to bring that's going to bring real security is not going to fit your paradigm. Right? Because think about David he was unnoticed, he was forgotten, he was left out with the sheep, they forgot to bring him. And so you've got to imagine the ridiculousness of David, the runt, getting anointed in front of all of his big, impressive brothers and saying, well, that's not what I thought a king looked like. But God is clearly saying, you've begun to see as I see when you look for the kind of king that I provide and it's going to surprise you. Because God was preparing his people not just for David, but for the real king whose name is Jesus. Right? Because Jesus is going to show up in Bethlehem. Jesus is going to be surrounded by sheep and animals when he's born. Jesus is thought of as a nobody. He's misunderstood. Everybody misses Jesus. He doesn't look or act like people think that he should. Some people say he's too common. He looks just like us in Mark 6. Others uh, think that he has too much fun. They accuse him of being a drunkard. Others say there's no way this could be him. He's from Nazareth. He's like from backwater. He's like a redneck right? Even his closest disciples say this can't be him because he's suffering and he's going to a cross. Every which way, Jesus is not the king and savior that we think that we should be, but God is saying he's the one. Because his life is going to end, think about this, hanging naked on a cross with a a crown, yes, but a crown of thorns. He looks so weak, he looks so shameful, And you're telling me that that's the king that God provided? Yes. Our only hope is actually a king who comes in weakness, actually who comes in seemingly embarrassing ways. That's the only king that will bring real security. Why? Because what needs to be purged out of me when I look beneath the surface is my pride is my self righteousness. If you see a crucified savior, the god man on the cross being forgotten and rejected by his heavenly father and you say that's ridiculous, I don't need that. You're proving you're blind. You're proving that you're absorbed with all kinds of meaningless stuff and you will have no security. Because you don't think you need to be remade from the inside out. You just think Jesus needs to kind of buffer up some of the edges. But if I look within and I see the mess that's within and I see the darkness And I realize my pride is the problem. And my only hope is outside of myself in a king who will be crucified in my place, who will be mocked in my place, who will take my sin. So here's the deal. You know you found the right king, or better yet, the the right king has found you, when you actually look beneath the surface at your heart and have gotten a little bit hopeless. Because you realize I've blown it. I get absorbed with all kinds of meaningless stuff. But it's there that you realize that Jesus has come. He has come not just to, to kind of shape up the edges. He has come to be treated flippantly, to be rejected by God on a cross because that's what we deserve. And that's how low he has to go to get to us. So that the indelible mark of the King Jesus' love for you is the crucifixion and that becomes a foundation of security that will never leave. So that's what I'd invite you to this morning finally is to keep coming. Keep coming all semester as we keep looking at at the life of David. Because I'm telling you, if you'll immerse yourself in the life of David, you will actually see the heart of King Jesus. And the heart of King Jesus is better than you think because you'll realize that he loves nobodies. He loves sinners. He loves losers like myself. And when the love of King Jesus actually begins to melt your heart, it actually begins to make your heart like David's, which is at the end of his life called a man after God's own heart it's only when you see the king's heart for you. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, when we look beneath the surface at some level, uh, we all must admit uh, it's not pretty. There is selfishness, there's greed, there's using others. Would you meet us this morning in these places, these places that we cover with outward beauty, beauty, these places we cover with niceness. Instead, let us turn to a king who would come and live and die for us so that he could bring his good and loving rule and security into our lives. Would you give us that humility by your spirit in Jesus' name, amen.